You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. So before beginning, um, we would like to begin by acknowledging um, that one of the institutions hosting this event, that is the University of Melbourne, stands on the lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nations, and we want to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome everyone to seminar five. This is the much anticipated final um, session of what has been a really wonderful series on transitional justice and international law. I am Valeria Vazquez Guevara. I am a PhD candidate at Melbourne Law School. And this series has been um, possible thanks to the effort and all the generosity of so many people but we just want to begin by thanking a few so as you know the event the series has been jointly hosted by the amsterdam center for international law at the university of amsterdam and by the institute for international law and the humanities at melbourne law school um, as you know the series um has aimed this is in the past tense because it's coming to an end oh my gosh um, well, the aim has been to bring scholars from all around the world to cover key themes on transitional um, justice broadly understood, and it's been quite a very um, enriching conversation that we've had between panelists, um, but also um, a very loyal audience. So thank you so much for your interest and for participating as well. So we want to begin by um, thanking a few people, like I said before. Um, first, um, Professor Sandia Pehuja, who is the director of the Institute for International Law and the Humanities, for her general support and also for sharing the first um, session and opening. Um, also at Melbourne Law School, we want to thank Annabelle Duncan, who is here. You might be able to see her or maybe not, but she has helped us with all the Zoom magic. And also to Angela Henley Boyce for her administrative support to run the series. At the Amsterdam Center for International Law, we want to thank Professor Ingo Bensky for his support as well. Um, like I said, participants for your interest and very especially to today's speakers, we want to thank Christopher Gibbers from the University of KwaZulu-Natal who's here, but we're trying to bring him to the panel right now. Um, we want to thank also Associate Professor Sarah Kendall from Kent Law School who would be um, helping us to kick off the discussion and also here with us, Associate Professor Oshik um, Sirkar from Jindal Global Law School. And now I'm gonna, Eliana will do some introductions. Yes, thank you, Valeria. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Eliana Pisato, and I am a Marie Curie Postdoctoral Fellow at the Amsterdam Center for International Law. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to our fourth and final seminar, at least for now, uh, titled Dealing with the Past, Reconciliation, Reparation, and Beyond. So in this seminar, we focus on the implication of the way in which the so-called transitions unfold. And we are delighted to have with us three amazing scholars that will shed light on this important issue. So I will introduce them now. Uh, so Christopher Givers is a lecturer in the School of Law, University of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, where he teaches international law and legal theory. 
His research focuses on black internationalism toward approaches to international law, critical race, race theory, and law and literature. Since 2015, he has been a faculty member of the Institute for Global Law and Policy at Harvard Law School, and he has been a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford and Harvard Law School. His most recent publication appeared in the Oxford Handbook of International Criminal Law 2020, Alternation Journal, and the UCLA Law Review. We have with us also Dr. Sarah Kendall, who is a reader at Kent Law School in the UK. Sarah studies the discursive forms and material practices of international law and global governance. At Kent Law School, she co-directs the Center for Critical International Law. During the academic year of 2020-2021, Sarah is on a research leave supported by the Leverium Trust to work on her manuscript tentatively entitled Humanitarian Complicity in the Global Legal Order. She also serves on the editorial boards of the London Review of International Law, the Leiden Journal of International Law, Humanity, and International Journal of Human Rights, Humanitarianism, and Development. And then we have with us Dr. Oishik Serkar, who is Associate Professor at Jindal Global Law School in India. Oishik works in the area of critical jurisprudence, postcolonial studies, queer theory, law, and violence. Oishik has just published with Oxford University Press his book, Violent Modernities, Cultural Lives of Law in the New India. And his second book, Ways of Remembering Law, Cinema, and Collective Memory in the New India is forthcoming in early 2022 from Cambridge University Press, Law in Context series. So we will start by um, hearing from Oishik, who will speak for about 15 minutes um, on the topic of the transitional condition on the partition as matter and metaphor. And then we'll move to Chris, and then there will be a discussion between Sarah, Chris, and Oishik for about 10, 15 minutes. And the conversation between Sarah, Chris, and Oishik will be followed by a Q&A session with the audience. So please feel free to post your comments or question in the Q&A box below. Valeria will collect and ask the question to the speaker afterwards. So without further ado, I will give the virtual floor to Oishik for his presentation. Um, thank you, uh, Ileana and, and Valeria, um, for giving me this opportunity to um, be a part of what I think has been quite a fantastic seminar series. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of spread out protracted nature has added to a certain sense of uh, community over the last four months uh, that you kind of get back to uh, the, the discussions. Uh, and look forward to the one uh, that, that, uh, that, that's coming up. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case after this one, but I hope you um, um, uh, convene another one of, of this kind again. Um, also excited to be you know, on this panel with uh, Chris and Sarah, uh, whose works I've already, I've, of course, read, but um, you know, I've never met Sarah before. Um, and so, so great to be on this panel with them. And of course, uh, if there are participants who've joined in and, and those I know as, as um, friends and mentors and comrades, hello to everyone. Um, so I'm going to share my screen uh, and let me...
Is the screen visible? Okay. Yes. Okay, great. Um, so I might not live up to the, the title of the talk that I had present, uh, that I had shared earlier, but I'll try. Uh, some of what I will say um, uh, owes, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> You know, it was, was something that, that began as a conversation with, with Sandhya Fahuja many years back about a project on the partition that, that we, have, we have been planning but hasn't yet materialized, but I hope it will at some point. Okay, so I'll start off. Uh, seminar four of uh, this series uh, presents a question and three words. Dealing with the past. That's the question. And the three words are reconciliation, reparations, and beyond. Today, I will spend first spend some time on the theme and the title. I will then try and make these observations speak to a short story on the 1947 partition of the Indian subcontinent, written by Sada Thasan Manto called Toba Tek Singh. The conveners have left us clues to help unpack the transition. They've given us two things. The striking cartoon by Zapiro to accompany the description of the series and the ellipsis in the question for seminar four. How would I read the title aloud? Dealing with dot, 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 the past question mark. The dots that constitute the ellipsis can suggest a moment of hesitancy, a doubt that repeatedly stops you in your tracks, not to abort, but to assemble and align. The tasks of assembly and alignment cast the ellipsis as the precarious bridge that marks the condition of the transitional. Unlike, for example, the more confident appearing M dash that hasn't been used. In the Zapiro cartoon, you can see the precarity is acute. The dots have dropped off or flown away. In the place of these vanished dots, there is an unexpected gap between truth and reconciliation. Desmond Tutu's bemused oops in the speech bubble marks this unexpected moment. The dots can also be read as the prototype of the conjunctive and in truth and reconciliation. The disappearance of the ellipsis as bridge in the cartoon, however, does not make reconciliation an idea that is rendered remote to truth. Reconciliation remains visible from the vantage of truth. Its proximity produces a magic realist idea of attainability. It is magic realist because the field of reconciliation in the cartoon, although as lush as its fertile grassy top as truths, remains empty of anything else and is still desirable, much like the tangibility of the empty map in the archbishop's hands. The ellipsis could also be read in another way not as the literal verbalization of the three dots as I did earlier, but as a speech disfluency that provisionally fills up that space, somewhat like this. 
dealing with um, the past, dealing with uh, the past. In this form, the transitional condition captured by the ellipsis marks a crisis of translation. Here, transitional justice is a promise of translation. If we go back to the Zapiro cartoon, it is about the translation of making truth intelligible to reconciliation. Because perhaps these are incommensurate categories that speak different languages. The meaning of truth as shown in the cartoon, populated by the presence of the people, things and technologies on truth's side, need to be carried over to populate the seeming terra nullius of reconciliation. But translation, as Gayatri Spivak has noted, is both necessary and impossible. And so is transition. The speech disfluencies emerge because of our repeated yet failed attempts to articulate intelligibility, which is a practice of establishing interpretive control over events and experiences by agents of transitional justice. And it is perpetually in a state of deference. Every time the promise of transition works with a telos of moving from truth to reconciliation, from past to future, from violence to reparation, something escapes. That's the uninterpretable and untranslatable beyond of trauma that cannot be reduced to the scripts and calculations of reconciliation and reparation. Necessary, but impossible empty yet desirable. The question of direction or flow, that is of temporality, has already been invoked in the words past and beyond in the title of seminar four. Temporality is also connected to the ellipsis, both as bridge and disfluency. The plain viewing of the Zapiro cartoon might suggest that we travel from and with truth to arrive at reconciliation, even as we stutter and stumble. Truth is like the grand norm. It's the base that validates reconciliation. It's a presupposition that makes reconciliation possible. This linear temporality also applies in case of other categories in the discourse of transitional justice. So apart from past and future, there are violence, reparation, colonization, decolonization, borders, nation, constitution, population, etc. This relationship between these categories on either side of the ellipsis can be called an agonistic intimacy. Agonistic intimacy is an expression that anthropologist Drigupati Singh uses in another context. Because of the tenuousness of the ellipsis, the condition of these agonistically intimate categories, even though they appear visually horizontal, is that they are valued differently to produce a vertical hierarchy where the first category claims a priori authority that founds the direction or flow of time towards the second one. 
But a minor element in the Zapiro cartoon does something remarkable to introduce a generative possibility in the ellipsis. This minor element makes the intimate as significant as the agonistic, where our question might in fact now turn to dealing with the present. Notice the sapling growing out of reconciliation's barren rock face and moving in the direction of truth. We could see this movement to be a change in the direction of the ellipsis as bridge or disfluency, a slow, vulnerable, yet determined movement from reconciliation to truth rather than the other way around. That too led by a non-human life form. This reversal opens up polysemic narrative possibilities in the stories of transitional justice that we tell. I'm not romanticizing this reversal as subversive or resistant. I'm suggesting that when we shift our vantage, we start to see how the transformative and the pernicious simultaneously co-constitute the condition of the transitional. For instance, how would we travel on the ellipsis as bridge of transitional justice when we see reparations lead to violence? What would we make intelligible through a disfluent translation when decolonization produces colonialism? In the next segment of my presentation, it is this interpretive crisis produced by the ellipsis that I will share with you by referencing the Urdu short story, Tobatek Singh. The story is written by Sadat Hassan Manto, a chronicler of the 1947 partition of the Indian subcontinent. There have been two other partitions in 1905 and 1971 that I'm not referring to here. Manto was born in Ludhiana. He is best known for his depictions of the corporeality of sex and the trauma of the partition that violently birthed the dominions of India and Pakistan in 1947. Manto was deeply hurt by the events of the partition. He had to leave his beloved Bombay and move to Lahore, where he drank himself to death in 1955. Since 1947, he wrote some of his most searing indictments of the partition. He did this in a prose form that mixed the realist with the absurdist, the sacred with the profane, but accounted only for failure, not redemption. Toba Tek Singh is one of his most well-known stories about the partition. The story is, an event, is about an event after the partition where a group of lunatics are being transferred from an asylum in Pakistan to India. There are many other stories that Manto has written about, about partition. I decided to discuss this one because it helps me think about partition as ellipsis, which is about the perpetually deferred transition of the state-making project in the Indian subcontinent. I refer to the version translated into English uh, from the Urdu by Tahira Nakhbi. The division of the Indian subcontinent into India and Pakistan 
resulted in an event of unprecedented mass violence, disease, and exodus. Pakistan was to be, uh, was to be for Muslims and India for Hindus. It's estimated that around a million people died and 75,000 women were raped. The partition, both as private and public trauma, is written into the hearts, minds, and bodies of its survivor generations on both sides of the border. The trauma is also written into the definitions of citizenship in part two of the Indian constitution and in the cultural imaginaries of a violated past. These cultural imaginaries have been used as a perverse justification for the mobilization of Hindu proto-fascism that wants to establish India as the holy land for Hindus alone. Despite the enormity and longitudinal nature of the violence of the partition, neither India nor Pakistan have ever attempted to organize a transitional justice mechanism. It is only a few years back that a partition memory museum has been established in Amritsar in North India. The writer Krishna Sopti has said that the partition is difficult to forget, but dangerous to remember. The memory of its traumas is necessary, but impossible to translate into intelligible language. And every repeated attempt to engage in this interpretive practice that mines into the silences of the partition is, as Samuel Beckett would say, an unnecessary stain on its trauma. Manto was acutely aware of the interpretive violence that his chronicles can repeat. His work made space for silences through ellipses and disfluencies in both form and content. He accounted for his own interpretive vulnerabilities when fictionalizing the partition. For example, when we encounter the title of the story, Toba Take Singh, those familiar with the sound of South Asian names might think that the reference is to a person. But when we read on, we realize that it might also be a place. In fact, it is a village in Pakistan's Punjab province. Manto places a metaphorical ellipsis between the person and the place, producing a relationship of agonistic intimacy that plays out through the story. Take another instance. He begins the story by stating that it took place two or three years after the partition, thus offering a temporal context, but in a colloquial tone of storytelling that does not speak in the authoritative voice of truth-telling. It doesn't matter if it is two or three, could even be four or five. There's a reason why he does this. To set up two rival accounts of the immediate aftermath of the partition. The first is the official narrative of the state that is tasked with transferring non-Muslims from a Lahore lunatic asylum to India in advancement of the nation building process so that no one as per the newly formed states is left out of place. The state has decided this on the basis of the religion of the people and not their attachment to their land, ancestry or relations. This narrative is unsettled by the narrative of the mad inhabitants of the asylum. The Hindu and Sikh lunatics are now going to be shifted to one in India. 
On hearing the news of the transfer, which has been decided by the authorities after several high-level committee meetings, the responses by some of the asylum inhabitants rubbish the neat political line of the border that partition has placed between India and Pakistan. Here are some extracts. In the Lahore asylum, the news of the transfer resulted in interesting speculation among the inmates. One man was approached by a friend. What is Pakistan? A place in India where they manufacture razors, he answered after much deliberation. His friend appeared to be satisfied by the answer. Another lunatic climbed a tree and said, I want to live neither in Pakistan nor in Hindustan. I will live on this tree. In his assessment of these responses, the unnamed narrator of the, month of the story says, where was Pakistan? What were its boundaries? They did not know. For this very reason, all the inmates who were altogether mad found themselves in a quandary. They thought they could not figure out whether they were in Pakistan or India. And if they were in Pakistan, then how was it possible that only a short while ago they had been in India when they had not moved from the asylum at all? The metaphorical ellipsis is now placed not as a border, but as a precarious bridge between India and Pakistan and between the mad and the sane, bringing them into relationships of agonistic intimacy. The ellipsis is now made hospitable to the disfluencies of mad speak. Manto does not make any attempt to make the mad intelligible, the supposed saneness of the reader. Have the inmates gone mad because, the because of the partition? Or are their responses holding up a mirror to the madness of the partition? Manto makes the reader encounter their crisis of interpretation. This is what takes us into the heart of the story when we meet its named protagonist in the forever standing Vishen Singh, who is also called Toba Tek Singh, but repeatedly asks only one question, where is Toba Tek Singh? This psychic condition is beyond the intelligible, sorry, uh, let me read that sentence again. This is what takes us into the heart of the story when we meet its named protagonist in the forever standing Bishan Singh, who is also called Tobatik Singh, but repeatedly asks only one question, where is Tobatik Singh? The profundity of the psychic harm of the partition that Mantu is chronicling is one where Bishan Singh has been displaced from himself. Or is he searching for a place because at one point he also asks, where is Tobatik Singh, in India or in Pakistan? His search for Tobatik Singh is accompanied by the repetition of variations of a line in Punjabi that remains untranslated in all English translations of the story. This psychic condition is beyond the intelligible remit of categories like reconciliation and reparations. The sameness of interpretation cannot claim a priori authority over this disfluency. Rather, the same need to now receive the wisdom of, of the man. But how? Manto doesn't offer answers. Rather, the affective charge of the story lies in the provocation 
that we repeatedly fail every time we try and make sense of the psychic harm of the partition. But we still need to try, like our illusory quest for justice. It is necessary, but impossible. The story ends at the India-Pakistan border, where the time, at the time of the transfer, Bishan Singh asks again for Toba Tek Singh and without finding the answer from the guards, installs himself right on the border. And finally, with a piercing cry, lay prostrate after standing for 15 years at a stretch. Manto's closing lines are, beyond a wired fence on one side of him was Hindustan, and beyond a wired fence on the other side was Pakistan. In the middle, on a stretch of land that had no name, lay Toba Tek Singh. The border has become the place and the person. And this perhaps tells us a story of transition as the post-colonial condition, a condition in perpetuum. How do we transition this transition? How do we deal with this past that we carry in us in the present? dot, 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 question. I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Aishik, for this um, super presentation. And uh, I will give now the floor to uh, Chris, who is here with us. Yes, I can see him, yes. Uh, okay, so the, the floor is yours, Chris. Thanks, Eliana, and thanks again to the organizers and my co-panelists and friends, and it's wonderful to be with you wherever you are, um, and particularly with Ella, a center that's done a lot for me in the past, and I'm very happy to be with you guys. So I wanted to begin um, by situating my remarks uh, where I am presently. So both in space, in a neo-apartheid former settler colony where justice was sacrificed for something called truth and a fiction called reconciliation, and in time, on the very day that we in South Africa commemorate the 1976 Soweto uprising, where young black South Africans rebelled against the apartheid state and were massacred. And you yet await justice or reparations of any sort. So as the author and literary critic Lewis and Corsi, who was one of the first and fiercest critics of South Africa's truth and reconciliation process put it, the TRC produced some bizarre facts, but hardly anything we did not already know or suspect, while the ideology of reconciliation functioned to reconcile South Africans to the status quo, one of unpunished wickedness and inequality ignored, where the physiognomy of white power mutated to allow a white minority to maintain its hegemony under the guise of non-racialism. However, to say that the TRC did not produce new facts is not to say that it did not produce an account of the past. At the domestic level, that account was one which, as Prof. Ramosa has pointed out, spectacularized apartheid and omitted settler colonialism, which resulted in the reduction of the question of freedom and independence or decolonization or the end of apartheid to the problem of the constitutional recognition of civil rights of the conquered people of South Africa, rather than the restoration of full integral and comprehensive sovereignty to the indigenous peoples conquered in the unjust wars of colonization. While at the international level, the account of the past that was produced by the TRC, as Cedric Robinson pointed out, was a closed text that produced an account in which apartheid was, quote, a unique, localized, localized, aberrant, and particularly virulent phenomenon, 
and not, as Derrida pointed out, a Western thing. Robinson explicitly linked the move to produce Solon's truths about the past that preserve an international order by providing sacrificial lands to both apartheid and Nuremberg, noting of the latter that, quote, it seems that every, new, every year new proofs are put forward to confirm the German people were singularly evil amongst the colonizers. Seen in this light, the TRC in South Africa was not an exception, let alone a miracle, but the latest example of how the international deals with, or perhaps deals in and transacts with, the past in a way that exculpates the West and reproduces white supremacy and racial capitalism. By, to paraphrase Mayor Angelou, confusing the past, threatening the future, and rendering the present inaccessible. In fact, the way that the international dealt with the past in South Africa can be seen or situated as the culmination of the ongoing disfiguring and refiguring of slavery and colonialism by international law. So one way to account for how international deals with or perhaps in the past is through the redirecting the concept of reconciliation from what Lewis and Corsi called Tutu and Mandela's grandest fiction of a colorblind rainbow nation somehow towards its accounting roots, naming the definition of reconciliation as making one account consistent with another, especially by allowing for transactions begun, but not yet complete, completed, or what we might call futures. So like accounting, as Captain Caitlin Rosenthal has recently shown, this story of reconciliation begins with slavery. So in the late 19th century, the reinvented profession of international law reconciled or made consistent the history of transatlantic slavery with their own account of a benevolent international law by telling it as the story of anti-slavery, a conceit which continues in histories of international law to this day and centering white actors and white benefactors as opposed to the enslaved. However, it was not enough simply for international to exculpate the international order. This refiguring of slavery by international law reproduced internationals animating white mythology by simultaneously universalizing slavery as an institution but insisting that it only persisted in African parts of Asia, and by doing so, locating those parts of the world in the West's past. In the late 19th century, combating the so-called recrudescent enslavement that lay in the West's past and in Africa's presence justified the colonization of Africa, including through the lesser known Brussels Conference of 1890, um, which often is overlooked in, in favor of Berlin. And in the early 20th century, it justified the near recolonization of both Ethiopia and Liberia, the only two black republics in Africa, in the name of suppressing so-called recrudescent slavery. Similarly, under the League of Nations, the refigura refiguration of slavery as a problem that persisted only in Africa was the engine that produced the International um, Labor Association's Native Labor, Code, Native, Labor, Native Labor Code in the 1930s, which was spearheaded by Robert Cecil and Frederick Lugard. This native labor code pathologized the native or the black or the indigenous worker in a way that not only reached back to reconstruction in America and in the, in the way that um, the resubjectivization of the formerly enslaved to reconstruction in the way that Hartman has pointed out, but also linked forward to apartheid South Africa, suggesting that international not only maintained apartheid, in many important senses, it prefigured it through the native labor code. So similarly, international reconciled or made consistent this benevolent account of its role in colonialism and the colonial roots, as W.D. Du Bois put it, of both World War I and World War II, and of the Nazi atrocities in particular, 
by scapegoating German colonialism and Nazi evil, as to paraphrase Robinson of, on, on apartheid, unique, localized, aberrant, and particularly virulent. As with slavery, this account of the past of colonialism served not only to exculpate the international and the West by sacrificing Germany, it also reproduced white supremacy and racial capitalism through the structures of a new international order that it consecrated in 1945. So one particularly telling example of how international dealt with or transacted with its colonial past um, in the context, is in the context of the Herrera and Nama genocide in Southwest Africa, which has recently received a lot of attention in light of the payment of reparations. So that account of the Herrera and Nama genocide, although it's something that's recently come to the attention of international lawyers, in fact was present as early as 1918 in the blue books that were produced by the British during World War I. And I've written about this in a chapter in a book called Retrials, Issues, New Issues of International Criminal Law, where essentially the Herrera and Nama genocide was set out as an example of the particularly pernicious form of colonialism that was limited to the Germans. And this these allegations in this blue book and in an earlier blue, blue book in 1916 were the basis for the call for trials after World War II. And yet when the Commission on Responsibility for the, for the Origins of the War suggested or set out the kinds of trials or the kinds of crimes that should be tried, the blue books disappeared. Right? So the past was useful for the purposes of establishing international criminal law, but that particular past was absent when it came to the justice that was to be dispensed at the side, although it never was. However, the Herrera genocide of the 1980 Blue Books and the past that they dealt with had not yet outlived its productivity in 1919, as when it came to the mandate system and the confiscation of German territories, it was the Herrera genocide that was cited by the Allies as the reason for the necessity for mandates. By 1926, however, this particular past or its transactional use for international had become a liability. And in fact, the Blue Books themselves and the account of the Herrera genocide was banned um, in Southwest Africa in order to affect a form of reconciliation between German and British settlers in the colony. So it had outlived its usefulness. Once again, during World War II, the blue books were rolled out to demonstrate the exceptionally cool nature of German colonialism, but this was done very cautiously by the Foreign Office who had decided that they were historically somewhat suspect. As Primo has shown in his book, this narrative of the exceptional nature of German colonialism as a betrayal of the West was consciously constructed and carried through at the Nuremberg Tribunals in the book by Primo is called Betrayal, in which German atrocities were narr narrated as a betrayal of the West Western values. Once again, not only to exculpate the West, but to reproduce white supremacy and racial capitalism through the new soon to be decolonized now non-racial international order. So during the course of apartheid, and in particular after the events like the 1960 Shah massacre or the 1976 Soweto uprising, a similar narrative was weaved in and through the international about apartheid South Africa and Southwest Africa as both deviant and aberrational in respect of the history of the West. All the while the political and economic structures of international law were maintaining apartheid. In fact, during the 1970s, apartheid South Africa was enjoying its golden years with the economy growing faster than almost any other capitalist country and white living standards going through a veritable revolution thanks to continued capital infusions from the West. So these attempts to re-narrate or to deal with the past of South Africa as an aberration from the West culminated in the decision to follow the route of reconciliation 
and the TRC, as opposed to the retributive model of anti-impunity being followed in Rwanda and elsewhere at the time. A decision that was instigated in part by Western states and the United Nations who urged South Africa to bury its unhappy past as soon as possible, insisting to misquote Fanon, quick, quick, let's reconcile. The result was a combination in South Africa of the liberal unfreedom of the formerly enslaved that followed emancipation in the US and the incomplete third world sovereignty for indigenous South Africans that followed decolonization, held in place by a form of neoliberal neo-apartheid. To put this more concretely, today we commemorate the Soweto youth uprising in South Africa amidst the youth unemployment rate of 74%. Many of those youths have graduate degrees, most of them are black. So by way of conclusion, international law not only deals with or in the past, but also in futures, or to return to the accountant's definition of reconciliation in transactions begun but not yet completed. As Sadia Hartman has shown in respect of reconstruction, the transition from slavery to freedom introduced the free agent to the circuits of exchange through the construction of an already accrued debt, an abstinent presence and a mortgaged future. This burden freedom did not just involve actual debt, such as that assigned to Haiti, the very first post-colonial state, but the debt of the freed subject or decolonized third world state of having to prove itself worthy of the freedom bestowed by white benefactors and the international, and to do so under unequal conditions and structures that continue to maintain and reproduce white supremacy and racial capitalism. As Hartman put it, the stipulation of abstract equality reproduces white entitlement and subjection and its promulgation of formal equality. The fragile as if equal of liberal discourse inadvertently contends with the history of racial subjection, sorry, inadequately contends with the history of racial subjection and enslavement since the texture of freedom is laden with the vestiges of slavery and abstract equality is utterly enmeshed in the narrative of white entitlement and black subjection. In short, time and again, International deals with the past through the inadequately contending with the history of racial subjection and the entanglements of and with slavery, colonialism, and apartheid and their vestiges. And in doing so, not only produces the material inequalities in the present and future through racial capitalism, but also reproduces the lie of white supremacy and white innocence that underpins these structures. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. And yeah, um, I will now, yeah, open up to um, questions and comments uh, from Sarah and also a conversation, yeah, which would be a nice a conversation between Oishi, Chris and Sarah. So yeah, the floor is uh, yours. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be invited to participate in this discussion. And my thanks to Valeria and Eliana and, and also to Annabelle for all of your help before. Um, I'm really in, in almost speechless hearing these two talks. They really were quite provocative, just beginning from Oishik's reading that was quite generous of the theme of this seminar going to the actual image that was selected and conducting a beautiful reading of that. I was also thrilled to, to see the kind of rhetorical work you were doing with this idea of the bridge and the ellipses. And I was quite interested in how it is that you raised madness as a kind of rejection of categories or as a way of imagining things otherwise. And in particular, unsettling the hierarchies of what comes first and what follows. 
So this raises the question of affect as well. Sonali Chakravarti writes of a different form of madness, the emotional state of anger in her book, Sing the Rage, listening to anger after mass violence. And she argues there that we need to listen to this anger and that it deserves a form of hearing. So I wonder if we can think of the productive force of this madness that Oishik recounts through his beautiful reading of Manto's Toba Tech Sink. What might an institutional form that can hear the truth of this productive madness look like? The bridge here in the talk seems to be between madness and trauma, redeeming both as a way of thinking beyond the congealed givens of transitional justice when it is figured as something like a toolkit, as a set of structures, and as a given outcome of reconciliation. So I wondered if perhaps we could think a bit more about what it might look like to more radically disrupt these congealed forms within the field of transitional justice that Chris has gestured toward when he talks about um, the sacrifice of truth or the sacrifice of justice rather for truth in the South African context. With Chris's talk, what struck me was the theme of complicity in the figure of the beneficiary. And of course, he's focusing on the field of international law and the way in which um, certain states in particular have been complicit in the colonial and imperial forms of violence that have been so documented in critiques of the field. And these themes of complicity and the figure of the beneficiary have been subtly present with us since the beginning of our session, really, from Valeria's land recognition at the outset and its reminders of institutional complicity with dispossession to Chris's recognition of his location in a settler colonial state built on institutionalized racism. And here I was reminded of the work of Robert Meister, who in his book, After Evil, talks about the figure of the beneficiary. And so I'm thinking, how can we center the figure of the beneficiary to move a bit away from the figure of the victim and the perpetrator and think about this third figure where we can also think about the beneficiaries in state form in which many of us dwell that are beneficiaries of the international order. So maybe we could start from there and see where the conversation goes. Thank you both. Oishik, do you want to go first, or are you are you patiently waiting for me? Chris, you're you're fresh off the talk. I am still <laughs> digesting um, Tara's question, trying to turn it into something that I can respond to. So, um, you can go ahead if you have. <laughs> Thank you so much. So you had more time since the question. So this is a wonderful. Firstly, it's wonderful to see you, Sarah. Um, this is a wonderful question, and, I, and I'm going to try and come at it in two ways. So the one. I guess is to think about beneficiaries in temporal terms, right? So, so in some senses, the problem of the, uh, not the problem, but one of the complications of reparations locates injustices in the past and then remedies those through some type of present remediation. Whereas well, I think what's so powerful about the work of Hartman is how she shows that that is an on, that the insistence on, on formal equality through liberal discourse in the present reproduces white entitlement in the present. So to speak of reparations in the same way in South Africa to speak of what we call um, an employment law previous disadvantage is to, is to locate that disadvantage in the past and ignore the ongoing structures of white supremacy and how they reproduce entitlement in the present, right? Which is one way of getting around the problem of reparations where people say, well, I wasn't involved, I didn't benefit from apartheid, 
that all happened in the past, now we're in the present and the future, and we need to think about in, um, um, moving forward or reconciling in the context of a South African. So one way to think of beneficiaries is to think about the structures that reproduce that entitlement as being consistent through time, and in many senses, mortgaging the future, as Hartman puts it, right? As in um, implying not just a white entitlement, but a form of debt or responsibility of the formerly enslaved or of the decolonized or of young South African youths to pull themselves up by their bootstraps um, in terms of trying to cope with a system of ongoing white supremacy and settler colonialism. So to think of beneficiaries in, in temporal terms, I think is one way to do that. And alongside that, I, I think the provocation to think of it in, in state-based terms. So this is one way to think about reparations in the context of Germany is to think about how the German state continues to engage in unequal relations of trade with Southwest Africa and Namibia, right? To think about how reparations that take the discourse the, the around reparations in Germany is saying, well, it's just kind of like a form of aid, ignores again the ongoing systems of domination that are that not just in Southwest Africa, but around the third world, that Germany as a Western state benefits from in very material ways. So it's not just about the question of past beneficiaries, I guess it's the sense of addressing structures of inequality. And one of the things that's quite consistent about uh, the examples I think of slavery, colonialism and apartheid is the speed at which we've told as Fanon says to quick, quick decolonize or to quick, quick reconcile as a way of not holding on to how those futures persist in the present. So that now we've told it's happened, your claim is a once and for all, you are now reconciled, go forth. Um, as opposed to saying, well, it takes sometimes time to see how those structures persist. In America, those structures persist even to this day. And only now are we starting to see um, a recognition and, and a mapping of some of those structures. Although the, I, I should say, those structures were very clear um, outside the West and White Academy. So Du Bois was very clear on what was happening in Black Reconstruction um, at the time that it was happening. So I think something about, and then I guess a third thing to say, something that's come to my attention in a lot of these, and thinking through slavery, um, colonialism and apartheid is the link between these processes and their narratives at the international and domestic level. So when Lugard and Cecil are refiguring um, slavery in order to produce the native labor code for the purposes of maintaining black labor, labor conditions, discrete labor conditions in the colonies and ultimately in the whole world, through the indigenous labor code. When they're doing that, the same conversation is happening in America at a domestic level um, in terms of the rise of white supremacy and the suppression of um, post-World War I um, resistance and, and, and migration in America. And it's the people like George Padmore and Du Bois who, who connect those processes that the re-narrativization of the domestic past of American slavery is linked up with the re-narrativization at the international le level for people like Lugard and Cecil. And so something about those conversations happening in the same way that the end of the Cold War in America is having is producing conversations at the international level that are similar to those happening in South Africa. And so I think those that's one way to think about connecting those two conversations. Thanks for allowing me the time, Chris. Uh, my, my thank you, thank you, Sarah, for, for your comments and questions. Um, I'm, I'm going to hold on to one bit of what you said and offer mostly what might sound like a tentative response. So I'm going to hold on to the question that you framed as, um, can, can we think about madness as, as a rejection of categories? Um, uh, and I think uh, there are 
two ways in which I might think about a response to that question. One is in the use of, in the way in which Manto makes use of, 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 of madness, I think the gesture is not towards a rejection of categories, but in fact, a reorganization of categories in the sense that um, I would think that Manto isn't necessarily setting up the sane and the mad against each other. In fact, what the story, because I, you know, I guess one will be able to take something away from the story once the story is read and, and not, not when you hear me talk about it. Um, I think he's really setting up madness against madness rather than madness against the same. It's the madness of, of the partition being set up against the mad as, as we know. And uh, the reason I say that it's a reorganization of categories where madness is pitted against madness is because uh, it's not the mad versus sane um, story that, that we hold on to when we think about the partition. Because if that were the case, then we would have seen some form of institutional mechanism of transitional justice being put in place. But that's never happened. We might want to force the idea of transnational transitional justice on, on two very different forms of response to the partition. One, of course, is the Constitution of India, you know, it, which, which generally gets read as a document that marks a break from colonialism. But it also marks a break away from Pakistan, um, as is you know, present in, 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 in if one reads the beginning. Uh, parts of the of the constitution, uh, <clears throat> and on the other hand, there's another. You know, one could in, in fact call that a form of transitional justice mechanism, a non-state transitional justice mechanism that's been underway, which is in fact the repeated instances of anti-Muslim pogroms in 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 India. You know, it is it is in fact justified as a justice-seeking, um, you know, attempt by 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 the Hindu right over an over and over again to avenge the madness of the partition, as it were. Um, so, so I, I think what Manto's provocation really for us is to is to you know um, is to pit madness against madness. Um, and and if there is a refusal, uh, it's it's a complete refusal of the category of of the same um, in in its entirety. Um, a very inadequate response that. Uh, thank you for the question. I think it's a far more than adequate response. And um, I, I just really wanted to say that um, your raising of madness as a kind of affect in that text, I think, created a kind of productive rupture in, in a similar way as your reading did. And so I wasn't, I wasn't trying to suggest that Manus is sitting in opposition to something considered sane, but rather that there's a way in which it reveals the problematic nature of the various categories and your, the quotation of you know, kind of wanting to be in the tree and not being in one place or another, I think was a really interesting way of showing the very problematic nature of those embedded categories. And I think I'm wondering how we can link these two talks with one another. There's obviously a very clear, clear link in terms of uh, logics of colonial governance, legal structures, but I'm wondering what might be more provocative links that we can find between these two talks and perhaps Chris or Oishik, you have comments on each other's um, on each other's talks. 
So, I mean, when, oh, I when really, it, sorry, go ahead. go ahead, sorry. Okay. So when would I link these, I guess, it's superficial, but I think it might have some purchases. Is, so in the critique of the ideology of reconciliation by Lewis and Corsi, uh, what he's arguing against is the kind of forced narrative of a reconciled rainbow nation, which, which pushes out more complicated story. And the example he gives is of a play that he wrote called The Black Psychiatrist, um, which, was a, which won a lot of awards internationally, but when he tried to show it in South Africa, he was told essentially that what, they, what we were looking for in the 90s and 2000s was kind of these reconciliation stories. And the complicated account in The Black Psychiatrist was one that wasn't really fitting within the nation that was trying to be narrated by the TRC. So I wonder in some sense, that's one way of thinking through, um, thinking about how the way to come at these problems of reconciliation and in particular through legal structures doesn't allow for the kind of messy narratives of other genres such as plays and in fact that the structures of law and the need for an account to quick quick let's decolonize or let's reconcile doesn't allow the space or the time and in ways is probably productively antithetical to what is required to come to terms with the types of injustices um, and violences that we end up and the intergenerational trauma that we're talking about and speaking about. So in some senses, there's escape to fiction, which was certainly in Oishik's uh, talk was a wonderful escape to fiction, but the escape to fiction as well is perhaps both necessary and in some ways as Oishik says insufficient um, as a way of trying to address this. And we should stop maybe trying to fit these into the temporal uh, and the, I guess in some senses, narrative structures of legal redress um, and perhaps leave these things to the playwrights, the poets and the novelists. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take an attempt and uh, at drawing a connection. It's, it's going to be far shorter than, than Chris's. So I'll hold on to the, uh, the, the word fiction and the letter that it starts with, which is F. And I think, um, Three other words that also start with the letter F have some bearing on the nature of the inquiry that, that you know, both of us are interested in. Um, and, and those three being um, fabrication, um, uh, I've forgotten the other two, um, uh, but, but it'll come back to me. Um, so I think it's, it's, let's hold on to the, the word fabrication. Uh, for the time being. Um, fiction offers us a certain kind of, of remit to think about fabrication as, um, as productive. Um, and, I, and I wonder what, what space uh, or how do we negotiate as, as those working with the discipline of law, even as we are kind, kind of moving in and out of the boundaries of this of that discipline to make space for fabrication in in our own work um, because at the end of the day we, we 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 are both kind of pushing at the boundaries of the conventions of the discipline while at the same time uh, meeting the requirements of of the discipline's conventions and um, in a way, the fact that we are constantly calling ourselves as those who do legal scholarship, uh, in a way, is a is a is a label that almost um, surreptitiously rejects fabrication, unless that is in itself a fabricated label that we we are constantly taking on. We are we are constantly in the drag of of 
of presenting ourselves as, as, as lawyers. Um, sorry, I've forgotten the other two words with F, but they'll possibly come back. Um, but fabrication, I thought, was, was um, an, a, a helpful word to hold on to, both in the context of um, histories and, and memories and, and our disciplinary um, loyalties, especially when, when we're can, engaging with the question of, of fiction. Can I jump on there? I think that's a wonderful um, reference. So fabrication, I think, is also something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. Maybe because fabrication as a word sort of brings together both the symbolic and the material processes, right? So fabrication is at once the fable, the narrative, um, which I've found is so, so the narrative of reconciliation, uh, the obsession of reconciliation to quickly reconcile, but to leave in place political and economic structures is something that's consistent both in uh, the, the questions of the histories of afterlives of slavery and in colonialism and in apartheid. So there's a symbolic fabrication of a narrative and in particular, a narrative of reconciliation and transcendence um, that, that white America certainly is obsessed with and longing for um, at this particular time. And I think it's something in South Africa that is foundational to our, our fictional, fictionalized rainbow nation is the fabrication of an account of the past. But fabrication also points towards articulation to material structures, right? To fabricate is to bring together different structures in different ways. And there's a material story to the ongoing of the lives of slavery, colonialism, and apartheid, and their links in the very material economic and political structures. So in some sense, fabrication allows you to move between both the fabled and the constellated or the articulated material structures, I think in productive ways. Um, because, and also to, to point to the fabricated nature of these, that these are man-made and circulated and shared. These are not things that come from outside. They are, and they're linked together in, in productive ways as well. I think fabrication is, a, is something we could think through quite a bit in these contexts. Um, thank you, Chris. You know, I, I, I just remembered the other two words when, when you were speaking. Um, and I think you, you, you I, I think that movement between the, the material and the symbolic uh, in, in the way you thought about fabrication is, is fabulous, another word with the letter F. Um, uh, uh, oh, so the other two words that I had in mind were, um, were uh, failure and finitude. And I think in, in many ways, uh, even if we articulated differently, both of us, uh, seem to be responding to the failure of forms of interpretation, meaning making practices, be they disciplinary or you know, life practices that uh, constant, constantly fail to grapple with the past. Is it even the past, um, um, for example? Um, and so that's the other, that's the other you know, that's, that's the context in which I thought about the word failure. Um, the word finitude uh, can, can take two forms. One, of course, is, is the limit of the processes that we are talking about, for example. Uh, the, the, the limits of the transitional justice mechanism, um, so on and so forth. But um, what are the, the, the limits of the nature of the inquiry that that's been that's been undertaken by the quote-unquote scholar figure. Um, uh, would 
good for me. And, and it, it's, it's a question that I'll find more difficult to answer in, in this case, because this is not an area that I, that I have necessarily um, researched on in, in, in any great detail. Um, but, uh, but the question of finitude is quite, um, is, a, is almost kind of a tick box approach to doing, um, doing research where you talk about limits and then you move on. Um, what would it be to, for example, think about finitude as foundational and central to um, you know, scholarly inquiries? Um, not, not a direct question to you, but I think you know, uh, there, are, there are resonances of an attention to failure and finitude and fabrication in, in both our presentations. Okay, so that was amazing. Um, thank you so much to, the, to Sarah for masterfully leading the facilitating the discussion it's been truly incredible to have you here so thank you so much for making the time to be with us and to Oishig and and Chris it's just been brilliant I I'm I'm really speechless I have to say uh, I was trying to find something in my notes to sort of summarize what we've been talking about. There are so many provocations, like Sarah said um, um, before. Um, there are a few questions in the chat. Um, if, so I'm, I think we will, we will discuss them because um, it's, it's really, it's been a very productive conversation and I'm sure the audience has had some time to um, think them through. So feel free to, um, answer them Sarah, Chris or Oishik. So the first one is from Rohini Sen, who many of you might know. Um, and she has two questions, one for Oishik and one for Chris and Oishik. Um, so I'll just say both questions and then there's someone else, Thomas, who has a question I will also um, read it out loud. So the first one from Rohini um, for Oishik. Are storytelling and truth-telling distinct in the account um, that you're offering, um, particularly in light of the act of reifying that um, institutions, the act of reifying that institutions perform? And then the question for Chris and Oishik is, is a judicial account of reconciliation necessarily predicated on consistency? Is judicial reconciliation distinct from other forms of reconciliation? Um, okay. Are you receiving the question? Shall I stop or, and, or I keep reading? Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. okay, I this think time, this time bit, Thomas is a bit different, so we can. Okay, I, I, I'll take the first question. Uh, are storytelling and, and truth-telling uh, different? Um, my uh, immediate response uh, will be 
in in terms of when we um, um, when we receive these these words, um, we attach a certain set of values to them in the way in which we want to interpret them. So. Um, the very fact that uh, a question about whether they're different is is being is being raised, um, uh, the question um, carries within it an understanding that there are, there's a difference that could be established because they are, for example, spelled differently, that they sound differently, they have words that possibly can carry different meanings. Uh, there are of course truthful stories and um, you know uh, stories that 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 aren't truthful, uh, but would we hold them to account uh, in the same way if uh, we call them the same thing? So for example, if you're listening to um, your, your grandmother uh, fictionalizing her escape um, you know, from, you know, at the time of the partition, um, you know, turn, turned into a story that sounds like adventure, um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether whether there'll be an attempt to hold that story to account in terms of you know did that actually happen? Are you, can you can you produce uh, documents uh, to actually prove that it happened? Um, so so we won't. So I think uh, the the very categorization of these two uh, uh, you know. Um, at a very preliminary level, help us see how do we hold them to account when we receive them. Um, but both share a certain kind of affinity, and that is kind of captured in the second part of both the words, which is the act of telling. The question to ask, of course, is how do we tell? Uh, in the case of truth, um, I think uh, there is a, an over-reliance on speech. Um, whereas when we attach story to telling, I think we become more generous and allow spaces for silence. Um, and I think that is what, uh, you know, um, uh, it's not something that I am saying. It's, it's something, a point that was, that was uh, compellingly made in, uh, in, 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 in the book uh, by Urvashi Butalia on the oral history of the partition. Um, women's oral history of the partition of, of 1947, um, where he makes a compelling case for storytelling. Um, she, of course, posits this as a, a, a memory versus history, uh, um, that, that's, that's her scheme. Um, but I think we, we do hold them to account very differently, and one allows for uh, a generous engagement with the idea of silence, whereas the, the other is obsessed with, with speech. Thank you, Oshik. So um, before Chris answers the Rohini's question as well, there's another question that is um, closely related with Rohini's. So Rohini's question is, is a judicial account of reconciliation necessarily predicated on consistency? Is judicial reconciliation distinct from other forms of reconciliation? And then this other question from an attendee um, is, how do you assess Germany's recent recognition to characterize the past events concerning Herrero and Nama as what they are from, this is open quote, quotations, what they are from today, what they are from today's perspective, 
um, Colin, a genocide. To what extent do you think is Germany's line of reasoning that legal claims for compensation cannot be derived from it attainable, if at all? Thanks. So the second one seems like an essay question that someone wants me to answer for them. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll say this, I mean, without getting into the, into the bits and pieces, one of the interesting things about, I mean, if we were to think of someone who is the authority on genocide, we would think of Raphael Lemkin. Now, Raphael Lemkin wrote a history of genocide that was un, in 1959, that was unpublished and was published more recently. Um, and sort of the, the draft that was published more recently, I think 2012. And he begins at a kind of genocide with the Herrera genocide. So it was very clear to Raphael Lemkin, at least, the, the father of the genocide convention, that this was in fact a genocide. Um, so I don't know if that suffices for the purpose of your essay answer, but I think I think to say that from today's perspective was a genocide, it was called a genocide not only by Lemkin in the 1950s, but by Du Bois in the 1920s, right? Um, and, and again in the, in the 1940s and others. So I think there's certainly, from today's perspective, is to say from a particular today's quite particularized perspective. And I understand why that's useful for Germany, but I don't think, I'm not sure that's historically um, accurate. There were certainly people who saw it as a genocide at the time. And once again, um, if you center the people who were suffering, uh, I imagine they saw it in those terms as well. I, I'm loath to hang on to that because I'm not sure calling it a genocide is gonna do anything. And I think it might do some might produce as many problems as it solves, but I think certainly Lemkin would be a good place to start to try and address that, that sort of amnesia. Um, on the second question, so I'll defer uh, to Cedric Robinson. So Cedric Robinson, in the bit that I quoted uh, in, in my talk, said that the TRC was what Umberto Eco had called a closed text, right? So a, a space of meaning so fragile that its interpretive authority requires total uncritical acceptance of a truth claim. And Echo gave an example of Superman, the cartoon Superman, as a such a closed text where the appearance of one serious inquiry would collapse the whole edifice, right? So that the TRC itself is a very, not just consistent, but delicate closed text and any rupture or attempt to seriously inquire about what reconciliation means, uh, what types of truth were produced, I think would disrupt certainly the TRC's kind of enforced fiction of reconciliation. Whether the TRC was a judicial form of reconciliation is a more difficult question. I will say one of the difficulties, I think perhaps with what I've said today, which is that we that these things are too messy, is that they kind of push you into an imponderable space and, and leave law in a sense exculpated because it can only do so much. But I think it's important when we think about how law produces consistency, it doesn't just produce consistency through being prolix or summarizing, it, it is the violence of the word itself, right? So one of the most violent accounts of apartheid is produced by the very first judgment of the Constitutional Court on the TRC, where the Constitutional Court summarizes in a paragraph the history of apartheid and doesn't mention race. So the Constitutional Court gives an, a judicial account consistent of apartheid, where it's a struggle of a minority against the majority. Without, without any expression of how race comes into that question. And in that narrative, the law is the victim of apartheid. It's the rule of law that's a victim of the struggle, right? So there's a lot of consistency in that account. It's not a summarized or prolix account, it's a violent account, right? That pushes a certain narrative of non-racialism and discredits accounts of race that are structural. And in fact, it's ahistorical in many ways. So I think the risk of 
yielding too much to inconsistency or too much to complexity is that we forget that, that the law is producing very powerful narratives that are doing things in the world. And then in some senses that addresses uh, Thomas's question or it starts to address. So when he says, how would you tackle the reproduction of white entitlement? Well, the first thing is I'd say, you'd have to accept there is a thing called white entitlement. You have to speak about races. Justice Blackburn says, you only were to think to get around races to talk about race, right? And if you don't, I forget who, who the quote's from, but if you don't understand white supremacy, everything else you do understand won't make sense to you. Right? So you have to start by taking account, sort of a non-racial account of the international order a post-racial account of the present, anything that in the way that the Constitutional Court did in, in that case, sidelines and discredits race as a category and as a structure is, is taking you in the wrong direction. So you first have to center those accounts and the consistencies between them. Well, thanks. Um, we have one more question, but I, and I think it's a, I think it's a great question because it, it, it leads us to, um, a bit of a closure right now and it's the big big question of transitional justice and and its sister fields so what do we do what can what can be done can an international or a national tribunal like sebastian is saying um be belated be, be treated as belated sites of transitional justice and bring in bridging the gap or can we bridge this gap or um but i think i well, I'll let you say something as final remarks, but one of the things, I really like how Oishik put it about with his three F words, the fabrication, the failure, and the finite, was it finite? I think that's... Yes, it was finitude. Finitude, yeah, I think it's a really, the, the three Fs really shake the ground and instead of providing closure, they just open up to more questions about, you know, the present, the, the future as well, that beyond. Um, yeah. And the ellipsis, like Sarah is reminding us, the ellipsis, Sarah says, it's a great figure for that. It's true. There will always be gaps. There is no closure. Wow. Well, in Sarah's words, Eliana, would you like to say something? No, I just I, I just want to let the, the speakers like maybe yeah, offer their final remarks and uh, yeah, and then unfortunately we have to close in a way or another. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, and there were Oshik's words are saying. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Those who have stayed with us, and thank you, Sarah, Oshik, and Chris. It's been and Annabelle, who's also here with us. It's been really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.